This is Guns and Butter. You have no idea the kind of people were at the Texas School Book Depository. Longtime CIA and FBI assets working there. Oh, we've got people who can be bribed, who can be uh, framed because they've had recent police records. They will say almost anything uh, in order to get out of trouble. They will cooperate. It is a hellhole wasp nest of problems for Lee Oswald. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Judith Ferry Baker. Today's show, Medical Experimentation and Oswald's Trip to Mexico City. Judith Ferry Baker is an author, teacher, and an artist. She is the author of two nonfiction personal memoirs, Me and Lee, How I Came to Know, Love, and Lose, Lee Harvey Oswald, and David Ferry, Mafia Pilot. She was once a promising young science prodigy who hoped one day to find a cure for cancer. Today she discusses the Information Council of the Americas, the development of a cancer bioweapon, medical experimentation at the East Louisiana State Hospital in Jackson, Oswald's knowledge of a plot to kill the president, as well as his trip to Mexico City, and people who lost their lives in the aftermath of the president's assassination. Judith, it's wonderful to talk to you again. I'm really glad to be here with what voice I have left. Judith, when we last spoke, you explained how you came to be involved in the secret underground laboratory project in New Orleans in the summer Mm -hmm. of 1963 to develop a fast-acting cancer bioweapon to kill Fidel Castro. The fast-acting cancer bioweapon was not intended for Fidel Castro only, but was being developed for future widespread use, as indicated by the murine 1,111 FN batch that you discovered in David Ferry's refrigerator. You go on to say that, quote, only one entity could afford everything happening here in New Orleans. Yes. What were you referring to? Well, originally, the batch that we were working with... um, I'll just put it this way. We didn't need very much of the material to uh, keep it alive. You'd have to have a number of, you'd have to have a number of batches. And you see, usually a cancer strain is only going to go through a few generations and it'll die off. The the Gila, the Helen, uh, original, there was one strain of cancer that's remained alive. We don't know why. You know, generation after generation. But usually you have to create um, a strain that's, you have to work with it and you have to put it in nitrogen, frozen, you know, freeze it in nitrogen to keep it alive. You can go and thaw it at any time and revive it. And this material, there was an awful lot of it. You didn't need that much. And I realized suddenly that we're looking at a batch that has to be for other uses, (laughs) a lot more than... Because, again, as I say, you can have these, why would they make all these backup materials? And I realized how much this cost. There's only one entity, yes, that could afford to do this, and it was government, CIA. Now, I knew already the CIA was involved, and that's why Lee, one reason that Lee was brought in to the project, he was to watch over it and make sure it did not get into the wrong hands. So now where was this material going to go? Now, these are the thoughts going through my mind. Never in a million years had I wanted to see something developed that would be used 
against anyone else. Why I thought my government would be, um, shall we say, ethical enough to throw it away after, you know, trying to use it on Castro. I don't know why I was so naive. But we believed back then. We believed what our government told us. We believed when we were told this is just aim at Castro. That's all. <laughs> Wait a minute. They had already experimented. At least there had to be more than one human being that was going to die from this when it was, you know, finally injected into them just just to test it. So now what are they going to do with it after that? And the enormity of what we had been involved in and innocently in some sense in that instead of trying to save the world from World War Three, we now have something, and I want to match that. We have a capability to kill. Now you can go and aim drones at people and make it obvious or maybe you can do something it's been 50 years later now maybe you can do something more subtle but please imagine whoever in a million years would have thought that our president could have a list of people to kill and the American people would allow this list of people to exist and that the president would have the ability and the power to kill any American if they're on the list. Think about what I've said. How can that how can we have fallen so far? And yet it happens little by little. It doesn't happen all at once. One little law, here's another little law. So when I saw that material from the refrigerator, I could see I could see the potential. I could see the abuse that could come. And I felt horrible. And for a long time after Lee was dead, I, I wanted to kill myself. I say a long time. For me, it was a long time. We're talking about a week or so. I, I had been used. We had all been used, betrayed. What about Dr. Oshner's involvement in Latin America and the Information Council of the Americas, or INCA? When we last spoke... You indicated that both Dr. Mary Sherman and Dr. Alton Oshner were heavily involved with this right-wing propaganda organization. Oh, yeah, they were. Mm -hmm. According to your books, Dr. Mary Sherman accompanied Dr. Oshner on many trips to South America. Since the two of them were heading up a project to develop biological weaponry, was there ever any indication that they were meeting with Nazi scientists in South America? Well, I have no direct um, information, but we have a few hints. For example, Ochsner was, uh, got his early training in Germany, and he was a member of Eugenics Society. Now, that's the background. Of course, you have places like Argentina where, you know, we have lots of Nazis were hiding, and um, he had worked on, on the record. He was the personal physician for Perón. Juan Perón. So how did he go and with whom was he meeting at various times? Uh, it takes someone else who's going to have to look into the true biography of, of Alton Oxner. What we do have are some hints in his in the book Surgeon of the South, which is the um, official record of Oxner's life, and it has a few things in it that are interesting, such as his... Um, Concern that he would be arrested by Jim Garrison. It's right there in the book. 
why would he be arrested for anything to do with the assassination of President Kennedy? Think about that. Think about what we haven't been told. All I can say is that there are only hints as to his um, connections or involvements. Most of these um, involvements that he uh, conducted himself uh, got into, they had to do with military and, of course, the leaders. And, yes, he would get debriefed. I mean, this just anybody would be who's meeting with, and during the Cold War, who'd be meeting with the head of state would probably have the FBI or CIA, you know, contact him and or her and uh, ask, you know, these are what they call domestic and uh, other types of contacts. And even Clay Shaw's is known to have had many trips, you know, to Central South America and so on. And when he did so, he was being, when he came back from Europe, Anytime you had travelers back then, they were, um, you know, interviewed. And uh, how much they were told or how much they knew they were being used, it varied from person to person. So just because Paul Knoxner had a lot of interviews doesn't mean that he was a CIA asset. On the other hand, Inca was supporting, and Knoxner was supporting um, certain people like William Gaudet, who was writing a, an anti uh, communist journal that was sent out to Central and South American Latino, um, you know, entities, and that was being funded by the CIA. So we know the CIA was penetrating these groups. How close did they get to Oxner? Well, Oxner was very, uh, we'd call it kind of easily duped to do almost anything, and we cannot say that he was a sinister individual. And I believe that everything he did, he believed was on the up and up. What he was doing was for the sake of the country. It wasn't for the sake of, you know, uh, cooperating with evil people. In his mind, there were expediencies. It's best, better that one man die. You know how that story goes, rather than a, than a mass of people die. And he, he had that viewpoint. Did Tulane University have a secret research facility at the East Louisiana State Hospital in Jackson? It, is... Yes, yes. And we have a, we have many records. Of course, when I spoke out in 1999, I didn't know about Bill Davies' book and um, all the uh, information that he had, especially footnotes. I want to tell you that uh, there were many experiments that went on at, at uh at the um, East Louisiana State Mental Hospital there at Jackson and at other hospitals. But the graveyard, the graveyard was at Jackson, and they were just numbers. I looked at the death rate. It's just unbelievable. Some years they said they had no deaths. Other years it's like one or two. This is impossible. You, When I w was out there just that one time, I saw several. Uh, I talked to some people, and they had seen several fresh graves and that was just that month so who knows how many people you know fell between the cracks and were never reported as having died at all who knows how many were taken down into if you go there the dungeons still exist they're like dungeons where they i don't know bathtubs where they you know put them in the water for hours they had um, dreadful facilities we have photographs from back then people in the 30s and 40s and 50s going into the early 60s walking around with what looked like white sacks for clothing you know and people sitting in, in corners and some of them 
obviously completely out of their minds. I mean, you could do anything with these people. Nobody would know it. Oh, wow. Is there any indication that experiments there were funded by the CIA? Yes, because we know Robert Heath was out there. Um, we, we have um, various records showing that Robert Heath and, of course, David Ferry was associated with him. Tulane had uh, different projects going on. We have some interesting um, interviews on the Internet of people who uh, wrote different uh, journals and so on or essays about their experiences. Of course, they're crazy, but the point is, is what they went through. One individual wrote about how, I mean, he was picked up. He um, was put before a judge and declared insane. And I think the guy was insane, but here's what happened. Um, he's, he was literate. He was able to describe what, what happened to him, how there really, there's no judge and jury. I mean, the judge just automatically, barely speaking to him, says, yep, you're, you know, we're going to incarcerate you. You're insane. And if the, if the person didn't have funds, if they didn't have a lawyer who could get them out, and they were all desperately trying to get lawyers, and they would even, you know, offer sexual favors to try and get someone to help them get a lawyer, things like that. Uh, they had these various groups where they did experiments on them. They did a lot of EKG out there. They they just simply were doing, um, they had various groups that the people were practically anonymous. Some of them had been there for years, and they'd completely lost track of what their names were. I mean, they had numbers, you know. And when they buried them, they used numbers. There, were, there was a lot of abuse out there. So and there's no telling how many experiments were done, but we know we have some on record, especially with uh, Dr. Heath. And we have Dr. Frank Silva, who was out there all those times, I mean, for years. Silva was there when the project started. Silva was there until just recently. All those years, this is a gatekeeper. Now uh, we have Joan Mellon and others who interviewed him and said, oh, nothing was going on out there. And there was no project to, uh, you know, no cancer project way back in the 60s, as if he could remember with all the different things that were going on out there. Um, I believe he, he was, uh, Mr. Silva, Dr. Silva was kept out there to make sure that no new person would move in and find out all the abuses that went on. And abuses did occur. It was notorious, absolutely notorious. And um, one uh, one doctor who worked out there with Dr. Heath said, "Yes, we did this, that, and the other experiment." He was in a, he was telling his nurses over in Australia. I'm speaking with author and former cancer researcher Judith Ferry Baker. Today's show: medical experimentation and Oswald's trip to Mexico City. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Uh, what about MK Ultra? Did you hear about uh, MK Ultra experiments, mind control? Yes, yes. Uh, they had supposedly. Dave told me they supposedly had shut down MK Ultra, but they just changed the name. <laughs> I think he made it up a name to me till it was Cauliflower, but it was really Project Artichoke. Uh, he didn't give me the real name. He just made up a name. But he would do things like that. So, like one time he said Project Mosquito, and I'm sure he meant Mongoose to another person. So he would use different names for the actual projects. But he seemed to know a lot. Well, he got around a lot and uh, had associations. As an airline pilot, I mean, he's making three trips a week between 
New Orleans and Dallas and Houston and other cities there in, in Texas and going back and forth three times a week, overnight or two, you know. So we're talking about a man who is very useful. And as I said before, originally, David Ferry had stated that he would like to see Kennedy. He thought Kennedy ought to be shot dead. And he stated that before 70 retired military officers, and they took this seriously. Some of them, after they made him get off the stand, you know, they were outraged. But some of them came to him and said, you know, Dave, you know, you're a talented man. You're a great pilot. You're a linguist. You can get a message in Spanish and you can translate it. Um, you know, you know all the medical terminology. You're, in it, you know, you're so multi-talented and you hate Kennedy just like we do. You're somebody we can use. Would you like to hear more? So, I mean, David telling me some of the things that going through his mind, does he say at that point, wait a minute? No, he says, yeah, I hate Kennedy. What can I do? You know, what are we going to do about this monster? Because that's the way he felt. Later, he finds out it wasn't Kennedy's fault. Now he is deep into this. He knows some of the people who are serious. I mean, most of them were just talking. But some of them were serious and had the right connections. And David Ferry knows who they are. And he speaks to people like Lee Oswald. Not to very many, just a select few. Really concerned. And, of course, he told Mary Sherman that attempts were going to be made on Kennedy's life. So by the time I reached there in May, you see in the book, I'd show up. I've been invited to Dr. Mary's uh, apartment. And I walk in there as David Ferry sitting there. And they start telling me about this man, this man who's causing so much trouble for the mafia, this man who, you know, has fired the head of the CIA, this man who thinks he's president and something has to be done about him. Now, what are you going to do? Of course, in New Orleans, half the people were all the time, you know, rumors going around. It was a perfect place where you could speak about things like that and wouldn't be taken seriously because everybody was shooting off their mouths. But David Ferry knew this was serious stuff. And if we didn't kill Castro, his belief was their hope really was that killing Castro meant all these groups had something at stake in Cuba. And if they moved in on Cuba, you know, they wouldn't have the uh, cooperation among themselves anymore. They would be sort of like dogs fighting over bits of Cuba. Mafia, the CIA wouldn't be getting along very well anymore as far as um, cooperating to kill Castro if he's already dead. They have nothing in common anymore, and the CIA can go about its business on. It would help break up the coalition. It was hoped that they would stop um, focusing on Kennedy and would focus on C the uh, Cuba and uh, settling down the rest of Central and South America again. Well, as you know, we did not succeed, and we ended up um, ourselves being sullied, and there's nothing that we could do about it. In your books, you say that Lee Harvey Oswald had penetrated the presidential assassination ring. Did he tell you who was in this ring? I know one thing. The assassination ring we're talking about began, or I should say some of the players began in New Orleans, and that's why like Jim Garrison had many informants, you know, was so intent on trying to find out, you know, how the plot began. 
but you have to understand that these people, Lee actually went to uh, at least two meetings in Baton Rouge. And it's like a meeting place between the people in New Orleans and the people that were in Texas. And I'm talking about these were military people. Lee had to stand outside and guard a meeting. Some of these military guys came by and looked at him, I mean, like inspected him, made him feel very uncomfortable. And he told me later, you know, it's just like, yeah, they're sizing him up. They don't want to forget what he looks like. And here he's supposed to be guarding, you know, their meeting. And uh, he felt like he was under suspicion. And, and of course, he was not certain of uh, there were many uh, other things that were going on. He was actually allowed to attend some of these meetings. Again, it's like, you know, we, we need you, boy. We need you to uh, pay attention to all this because maybe we can use you, you know, here and there or whatever. And Lee is not going to, he is going to be apparently loyal to these wives. He was a Marine, you know. Some of these people had to, uh, in the military, Lee did not tell me what branch of the, um, you know, armed forces they were at all. But what he did tell me is that these people were high up and they're holding some meetings in Baton Rouge, and also at a place called Sulphur. And I took my kids once to Sulphur, um, Louisiana. I wanted them. I wanted to see it because Lee told me that they had some meetings there as well, or at least one meeting. I I don't know how many meetings, but I remember it wasn't very far from the uh, from Texas border. And when we were living in in uh, Houston, I actually drove the kids there, and I told them. Oh, I just want to get across, you know, to Sulphur because that's we're in Louisiana and I've never driven you to Louisiana. What I really want to do is just set foot there because Lee had been there. I know that may sound silly to others, but I missed him very much and it's just nostalgia. Just to be able to walk where I knew he had walked, that's all I wanted to do. Anyway, um, things were going on. There were a lot of meetings. I mean, Lee wasn't in on all of them or anything like that, but he, he obtained enough information. A lot of it was, you know, Dave is flying people back and forth. And some of these are, he's doing this, some of this is for the mafia. You know, the mafia and the CIA working together. You need a pilot you can trust. And he was the mafia pilot. The CIA could trust, keep his mouth shut. But what if he's telling Lee Oswald? I do not know what he told him. I do know that Lee obtained information and some of it, Maybe the majority of it was for David Ferry. And that's why I wrote the book about David, so you could see his background. I know the book is rather boring in the beginning, because I've got to show the whole life of David, and I cannot say he did this and that. I just have to show what he was doing as much as he told me, because I'm not going to make up anything. So some of the book is boring in the beginning, but you have to have the background there to understand why he was capable of doing things like analyzing autopsies, of all things. David Ferry knew so much. Why? How did he get trained in investigation? I mean, you just don't hire a man uh, who is a pilot and, as an investigator unless he had skills. So we have to show his prior life and how he was involved, in fact, with the Kefauver Committee and so on. He was involved early on um, investigating organized crime. A lot of people don't know that. So all that's in the book and it's the background of Dave so you can understand why he was capable of doing some of the things he was. Not just as a pilot, not just as a wannabe priest or bishop. He had many connections and um, he was an asset. There's no doubt about it. 
Well, I thought your book on David Ferry, uh, Mafia Pilot, was very interesting. It explained a lot, and I ended up feeling quite sorry for David Ferry uh, reading your book. Well, I'm glad, because that's the way I felt, too. I mean, he was trapped in his own body, in his own, you know, experiences. This is a man I considered a good man who had been twisted by circumstances beyond his control to become the man he, he was, and he was doing his very best. And who knows how he ended up. I, I didn't know him. God bless him. I didn't know him in the end, you know. We had to stay apart. But he he said, you know, well, I've often said to people now, he was D.W. Ferry. My dad was D.W. Ferry. And he had been born the same year as my father. I was estranged from my father, but how in the world can I not wonder about David Ferry? David exerted himself every possible way to get me to believe in God again. And he'd help people. I mean, he'd take a tramp. I know one time he flew a tramp all the way to Chicago, you know, who would have been homeless otherwise. Got him home. Didn't charge him anything. Took him by plane. Uh, this is not an evil man, but still he did things like he, he, there's no doubt he seduced teenage boys. I mean, what a complex character. And yet, if you knew him, you'd have to want to pray for him. It's a very complex character for sure. And I thought your book on him was uh, very thorough and quite interesting, really fleshed out his character. Well, thank you. I, you know, I don't know how it looks to others. I, some people say, well, you shouldn't have put it in a timeline, but I wanted to show how he developed. And it is not it just doesn't work to say he went to Tampa and he learned investigative work. He, he found a way to help the Kefauver Committee and things like that. And by showing the dates, you could see how he's, I hope, how he's changing, how he's moving. He's a man who wanted to become a priest. And look what happened to him. It's tragic. Well, your personal relationship with him also was very telling in the book. I thought that, was, uh, that really fleshed out his character. Well, some of that was very embarrassing to me in order to expose who David was. I had to expose my own past in some ways, you know, my desire to serve God, including uh, um, abusing myself to what pay for the sins of others, you know, as I was, had been taught to be going to become a nun. But I could understand why David abused himself, like you said, trying to whip out the evil that was in him and to repent of his, you know, it was like penance for him. He desperately wanted to be a good man. Tell us what you know about David Atley Phillips, CIA station chief in Mexico City. Was David Atley Phillips Lee Harvey Oswald's handler? And, yes. And Oh, he was. And did Oswald say that Phillips was the traitor? Absolutely. Um, that was the name he told me never to forget. You know, uh, Phillips made a mistake with Lee, cause, probably because Lee was low on the totem pole, because originally he had introduced himself to Lee as either Benson or Benton. I can't remember anymore. Because the first time Lee told me that he had met with Benton or Benson, I, I didn't pay attention. And he only brought up the name a couple more times. But it turned out when when he met him um, over in Texas with Fessiana, with Antonio of Alpha 66, at that time he called himself Bishop, so he had forgotten. Now, he, 
Phillips had used at least 30 fake names, so he just mixed it up. So Lee knew that wasn't his real name. One or the other was fake or both of them. What was his real name? And that, that alerted him to, you know, hunt for the truth. And he eventually did discover that this man was living in Fort Worth, and he tracked it down because he was living in Dallas, not very far away, and he determined, yes, this man's name was actually David Atlee Phillips. And he was the one who was manipulating Lee into a position that he could not remove himself from without, well, basically, um, they would have killed him anyway by then. It was awful to hear Lee telling me these things, and we were crying. There was nothing we could do. I knew that Lee was trapped, and he knew it. Um, You have to live with that for years afterwards, knowing that people are saying Lee was a horrible person, that he was evil and shot Kennedy and all the things they've said. They were with me when he asked me to pray for him, the Lord's Prayer. They weren't there to hear him say, please tell my little girls I was a good guy. I'm speaking with author and former cancer researcher Judith Ferry Baker. Today's show, Medical Experimentation and Oswald's Trip to Mexico City. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Why did Lee Harvey Oswald tell you to remember the names Bobby Baker and Billy Sol Estes? Well, of course, I didn't know at the time who they, except that I'd seen uh, Bobby Baker on the you know, cover of Time magazine that and had made some attention to that. But, um, of course, Lee said it was not, uh, they weren't going to be involved, but it was because of them. But that was his way of of stating the peril in which Lyndon Johnson found himself and the focus of why Lyndon Johnson had a choice to make, either go to prison because we had the congressional committee that was looking they were doing hearings, and they were obtaining solid evidence that Johnson should be removed from the vice presidency and would have probably have to go to trial and might end up in jail, in prison, or he could become president. My, what a difficult choice for Mr. Lyndon Johnson. So it sounds like what Lee Harvey Oswald was telling you was that Lyndon Johnson was not necessarily the mastermind behind the assassination, but that he went along with it? Well, let's let's put it this way. A lot, a number of people, Roger Stone, Jerome Corsi, and Philip Nelson, for example, have written whole books where, where they believe that Lyndon Johnson... On the other side, there's a recording of Johnson talking to Hoover, head of FBI, and he's saying, do you think they shot at me? But wait a minute. He knew he was being recorded. Anytime you see these talks between the two men, they know they were being recorded. So you can't trust what they're saying. They're not going to say everything completely. So, right. I mean, we had a very profane uh, man here capable of doing almost anything, filled with ambition, filled with with. A greed for power that is almost inestimable. What do you know about Lee Harvey Oswald's trip to Mexico City? And I guess oh. this gets a little bit back to David Atlee Phillips, who was CIA 
station chief down there. Now, yes. this is an interesting uh, subject because so many people have claimed that he didn't go to Mexico City. Because oh, I noticed that they first claimed that he was there. Remember, there were desperate attempts to, to prove, to uh, uh, impersonate him while he was there. If he had never gone there, why would they have even tried to impersonate him? Think about that. Because he could have proven he was elsewhere, remember? The reports that we have, any reports we have that he was elsewhere, they turn out to be ill-founded. And, of course, some of them were based on the Warren Commission's assumption that Lee Oswald took a bus all the way to Houston. And, of course, as I explained in the book, it wasn't anything like that. The bus ticket itself wasn't even, the first two sections of it weren't even used. There's a return section that was used. Now, Lee bought that bus ticket the evening of the same day that we returned from Jackson. Why did he buy a bus ticket? That was almost a month, you know, before he left for Mexico City because we didn't know when these people might die. He's got to make sure there's as much time between when he bought the ticket and the death of the prisoner or prisoners. If he'd bought it right at the time of the death of prisoners, that might link, you see, to what happened in Jackson if it ever got out. So he makes sure he buys the bus ticket all those weeks ahead of time so you could say he was planning that trip to Mexico City all the way back then. Now, if he's purchased the ticket back then, obviously he's on his way at least planning to go to Mexico City. So that's our first indication. But that doesn't mean that he used the tickets. Of course, I explained who did use the tickets. Hugh Ward used part of the ticket in the end there. Anyway, a lot of things are going on in the preparation for Lee Oswald going to Mexico City. One of the most important is he sits and does nothing. I mean, here he was passing out all these pamphlets and, and leaflets, and he was getting on TV, and he was... So we have uh, Lee Oswald sitting around doing nothing after he'd been so active. And all of a sudden, here comes Ruth Payne to pick up Marina and take her to, you know, Irving near Dallas. And Lee is... You can see it in the, in the book, Marina and Lee which is an official CIA-sponsored uh, biography of Marina Oswald, uh, written by P Patricia, what, Johnson McMillan, McMillan Johnson. And she there states, you know, Lee is going to Cuba, and he will never see Marina again. And, of course, to get to Cuba, he has to get a transit to go to Cuba. He asked for a transit visa. Now, by the way, his Mexican tourist application says Catholic on it. Now, see, Lee and I were going to meet in Mexico. The plane that was going to take me there was shot down the same day that Lee entered across the border into Mexico. I had my bags packed. Lee calls me at the border and tells me, he made several phone calls that night for crossing the border, so I've got proof that he was on the phone to other people because he called Mrs. Twyford, and that's on record, and said... Uh, you can read about it in the book, the Twyford call. So he was calling that night, and he called me. And, you know, he told me, you can't come, they're missing. Sullivan, Jeffrey Sullivan, in Alexander Rourke's plane had gone missing the same night. That I, had, he, I was expecting them to come. I was going to leave Gainesville. I was going to go to Eglin Air Force Base near Fort Walton Beach by taking a bus. I would had a book, it had a 
notation in it. The book came from the Eglin Air Force Library there. It was a book on modern Greek that David Ferry owned, or I should say had in his possession. I was supposed to show that at the second gate, not the main gate. And they let me into the library to return the book. And there I would have met Sullivan and um, Rourke. Instead, they disappeared, and I was trapped. And I was planning to buy a commercial flight to go there, but Lisa, you're going to have to wait because I've got to see what's, you know. His problem was that other things were happening. He had, by having that plane shot down, he knew there were some problems, or I should say it went missing at that time. He had to find out where they were, and maybe, you know, so he hadn't told me, don't come down yet. Now, for those who say that Harvey never, it's Harvey and Lisa, Harvey never went to Mexico City. Again, we have to ask ourselves, why would Lee Oswald have purchased, and it's on the record that he purchased a you know, bus ticket. Second, of course, that, that was just to hide where he was really going. He actually took a plane from Homa, and that was a Schlumberger plane, uh, the Haviland Dove. I can't forget the name because I thought it was so interesting. He's going to take a biological weapon. Um, and here it's it's being carried in a dove, of all things. And Lee Oswald, we're looking at, at why would he go from Homa? And recently, Edward T. Haslam discovered that that was where a lot of um, planes took off, and but they were not recorded. They were not recording takeoffs and landings from Homa. Air base. That was a blimp base out there. Plenty of room for planes to take off, you know, and land and take off again without any, they can't find any records on it. So that's apparently why they use that area. So you have Hugh Ward is flying lead to various places before he has to go to Houston. And Houston, he ends up in Houston finally and uh, gets on the bus that takes him to Laredo. So now everybody all of a sudden, oh, yes, Lee Oswald's on the bus. We have witnesses, but not before Houston. So people have been confused, and some have said, well, maybe he wasn't on the bus at all. Well, no, we have witnesses, but they, it wasn't until Houston. Of course, you can read the whole thing in Man Lee, why he did what he did, why he went where he went. But here's here's the odd thing, that, again, the the tourist application there, you know, to get into Mexico. It says Catholic. Well, he did that because I was Catholic. We believe that this would give enough information to anybody who's a poor priest somewhere in the middle of Mexico. They're going to see the word Catholic on a document, the one that Lee had. I had Catholic document, and they would marry us. as simple as that. For anybody who says, why did he do that? I mean, here he's supposed to be agnostic. He was raised Lutheran. Why did he put Catholic on that document? Well, that's why he did it. Now he is in Mexico City, and he was not at the hotel where they said he was. Lee told me he was at the Quaker house. And um, he was posing as a drug dealer and had everybody scared of him because he doesn't want anybody to talk to him while he's carrying all this material. He doesn't want to make friends. He said he wasn't alone. And he said he was riding with somebody to get to get places. So we've got a few scanty records that Lee was there. More records have emerged, and I um, applaud the the uh, researchers who have found more records. They have found a blonde male who was involved with Lee. All I can tell you is that if you have Lee going inside a, an embassy or into a any other, like for the the Cuban one or the 
Moscow one. The point is, is that someone was with him and they have a problem because if they take a picture of Lee and he's not alone, that, that smacks of conspiracy, you see. So what do they do? They send a picture of somebody else. And then later they say, oops, that was a mistake. Uh, but our cameras weren't working. And later there are impersonations going on because Lee Oswald is there. They got him down there. He's carrying this material. And David Phillips left about like a week earlier. Lee was supposed to meet him is what I thought. And Lee might have thought that too. It's like he said, I, I was supposed to meet him, I think, you know. At any rate, there was another handoff. He was supposed to make a handoff with a contact that would go to Cuba. It did not occur. Now, Lee has a problem because if he can't get the material into Cuba, it's all for nothing. All of this was for nothing. What escaped us at the time is that when he was in Houston, someone came from MD Anderson Hospital and exchanged the material that Lee Oswald brought for a new batch. He said it's a day younger, you know. This one's fresher. It lasts longer. Lee may have carried down a dummy. And had, that's why they didn't bother to pick it up. And probably this, they never intended anything to, to reach Cuba. I don't think they wanted this material to get into Cuban hands, and we never thought it out that direction. All we could see, you know, as we were doing this project. Now, Lee finds no one there to take the material, and he makes extraordinary efforts, extraordinary efforts to get into Cuba. I'm speaking with author and former cancer researcher Judith Ferry Baker. Today's show, Medical Experimentation and Oswald's Trip to Mexico City. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. We have Sylvia Duran, who uh, was working at the Cuban consulate, trying to tell people that, uh, no, it was this blonde-haired guy that was in there. Uh, it wasn't Lee Oswald and... No, she never slept with him. Well, wait a minute. We have people who actually describe Lee Oswald and Sylvia Duran being in the same um, house when they were having a, a twist party and all this kind of thing. Lee is trying to get information. Who else can he find to get this material who can go to Cuba? He is talking to people from the Cuban consulate. He's talking to students that are Cubans. That's what he's doing. He's making connections. And Sylvia Duran... Did she sleep with Lee Oswald? Well, just think of this. Why would the Mexican police pick her up and torture her to get that confession out of her if she had nothing to do with Lee Oswald, the real Lee Oswald? All this has to be hidden when it turns out that the tapes that go back are sent back. They match them with tapes that they had of Lee Oswald, probably the ones that he was speaking in New Orleans that are on record. And they said, wait a minute. This doesn't sound like Lee Oswald. These tapes don't match. Then they destroy those tapes and nobody can hear them, but we still have the transcript. Seems that somebody was posing as Lee, talks to people in very, very poor uh, Russian. Now, Lee, Lee spoke excellent Russian, so it's not the same man, not the same voice or anything. Does that mean Lee Oswald wasn't there? No. Is he going to see what's going on? Is, is he aware that people are making phone calls and pretending to be him? How would he? So anyway, what happens in the end, Lee Oswald has tried desperately to get into Cuba to no avail, and he tried to make himself look like an idiot and a fool and, you know, get me in. He supposedly put a gun on the table, said he's, you know, in danger of his life. Well, he would, any of that, along with bribery money, should have been sufficient to get him in. 
they say it would take months. No, there was, there was a lot of corruption going on, and, and Lee told me he had enough money with him to get him in, you know, under ordinary circumstances. Anyway, he's rebuffed. He can't believe it. He goes back, and he returns. Think about this. He was ordered back to Dallas. They said he could come back by Christmas. But he returns to Dallas, and right on cue, right on cue, something interesting happens. Uh, just around his, his birthday, October 18th, he's only been back, oh, you know, not two weeks yet. Here comes the transit visa for Cuba. Now, my friend, anyone under ordinary circumstances, if they'd already tried to make an idiot out of themselves trying to get in, and they had gone and told their wife they're going to leave her and never see her again, and they cry over it like we have in the book Marina and Lee, and we have Lee Oswald, who is missing down there in uh, you know, he is in Mexico City, and he's done all that. Here comes a transit visa. Where did that transit visa come from if he had never gone to Mexico City? That's on record. He had it. And the other part that's odd is he ignores it. Why? The project was over. It had failed. That's why he ignored it. So was he in Mexico City? Darn right he was. Uh, was he uh, betrayed there? Yes, he understood that he had been actually brought down there and that bad things were probably happening he could be blamed for. Even it made him look like he desperately had to get to Cuba and that meant, what does that mean when he's back in Dallas and they order him back to Dallas? Just think about it. I mean, they they sent him to work investigating the ACLU and other things. He told me how they, you know, putting him on minor assignments. All the while, he's getting information they even put him in contact. You have no idea the kind of people were at the Texas School Book Depository. Longtime CIA and FBI assets working there. Oh, we've got people who can be bribed, who can be uh, framed, because they've had recent police records. They will say almost anything uh, in order to get out of trouble. They will cooperate. It is a hellhole, wasp nest of problems for Lee Oswald. But he takes the job temporarily because he was told that he would be able to return right around Christmas time. They would send him back to Mexico City, and he wanted to believe it. Just so did I. I wanted to believe it with all my heart. He kept him there. That's why he took the temporary job. There were other jobs he could have taken that were full-time. Now, one of the interesting things about Lee is he never missed a day of work, except that last day he missed half of it. But yet... You know, the time cards we worked on in New Orleans, I rigged them all the time, so he was always checking out 530, 530, 530, right on the nose, no matter when he was checking in, clocking in. But here, I didn't have control of that, but Lee told me kind of gleefully, the secretary there was filling out everything for him. So we have a work record for Lee Oswald the day that, just to show you how much leeway he had, you wouldn't know where he was going, what he was doing. His last work record says that he worked a full day on November 22nd, the day that Kennedy was shot and the day that Lee Oswald was arrested at the Texas Theater, well before 4.30 or 5. How were you saved by Lee Oswald, David Ferry, and Dr. Mary Sherman? Well, Dr. Mary told me she was going to make sure I could get, uh, you know, become a doctor just like I desired to do and be an oncologist, but I'd have to do it 
in Central or South America or basically Mexico City. That was all for that. It was okay with me to get me into medical school outside the country after Oxford, you know, had thrown me away. It was pretty rough. She said she'd help me. I knew she was dead when she never contacted me again. Dr. Mary didn't deserve what happened to her, of course. And again, she was trying to help save Kennedy. That was one reason she was interested in um, cooperating with the idea of developing a bioweapon. The development of the bioweapon seems to have been Oxner's um, interest, and uh, Mary got into it a little late. She was working on another aspect of it, but there it was. I, I have gotten very emotional today about all of this. I was asking you, how how were you saved by Lee Oswald, David Ferry, Dr. Mary Sherman, and Carlos Marcello? Well, it's very interesting about Carlos. First of all, being a female helps. I mean, um, he thought I was a ditz. <laughs> I had to act silly around him, and everybody thought I was just a girlfriend, one of Lee's girlfriends, and it wasn't anything serious, and I, I, they had no idea what I was like. What they did know is I could get lost turning a corner, and, and like they laughed at me because they said I couldn't find my way out of a paper bag, and Marcelo basically felt like I was no threat. I'd say his inaction more than action uh, helped save my life because he wasn't interested in he knew I could hardly recognize faces. I'm terrible at recognizing certain faces. I can remember where they're standing, what they ate, what was going on, what time of day. But please don't ask me to put two similar faces together because I may not be able to tell one from the other. And when he could pass me on the street, all I could see is Lee, and he had tipped his, well, he didn't wear a hat, but he pretended he was wearing a hat. He tipped his non-existent hat at me, and I did not acknowledge it, you know, Frank was with him as either his brother or Frank Regano, I don't know, comes back and he's angry and says, why didn't you give him respect? And I said, and he tipped his hat at you. And I said, well, he wasn't wearing a hat, you know, and he, he didn't like that either. Anyway, they ended up laughing their heads off at me and, you know, and basically Marcelo said, you know, this, this woman, she's no problem for us. So it's basically mafia didn't think I could ever possibly even, you know, function as a witness or anything like that, they wouldn't have understood how much I knew what I was really up to. David Ferry was probably and Mary Sherman responsible for that because they certainly didn't let out who I was. Dave called me Jay, and that's a big name that could have been a male or a female, but of course it was the Jay. I mean, it sounds like a male. Who would think that he was working with a girl? But again, David, I was like the daughter he'd ever had. And this is a man who, he said, you know, my brother has all these kids, and I, I have nobody. It, just to hear him, the way he would talk. And I cared about him. You you would have to, when you saw how much he wanted to serve his country, how he was a courageous man, just like Lee. I mean, these are physically courageous men. They're, they knew um, various, I wouldn't call it karate exactly, but they... They had uh, been trained in self-defense and in all kinds of ways to um, deal with emergencies. They, they they knew martial arts. The average person doesn't know any of these things. And, and I thought I had known martial arts. I thought I was pretty good at karate, some karate moves. 
Jay flipped me with just a twitch of his wrist. I mean, it, it was very embarrassing how fast and good he was. That man was good. It would take a lot to subdue him. And I believe the reason you find him naked in bed dead when Dave wore pajamas, when you found him naked in bed dead in the coldest, one of the coldest days of the year, February 22, there in New Orleans, probably they had to rip his clothes to subdue him. And I think they had just put his clothes somewhere else. Why is it he's naked, but he still had his eyebrows on, he still had his wig on when he would take that wig off and it was glued on his head. I mean, it was itched and everything. He wouldn't keep that thing on all night. How come he had that on but no clothes? Oh, it's just, I know that he was killed. Of course, in the book, you've read the book now, you've seen what they did with the letters. Um, I imagine that David, he didn't want to see me die, and he knew that if I'm staying in Florida, you know, I'd be safe if I kept my head down. So that's what he did. He gave me the warning. He said, I don't want you to die too. And as for himself, he, he figured that they'd finally get him. He had no illusions. I don't know what he would have done. He said, I can't hide. I'm too ugly. <laughs> As for Lee, Lee was in so deep and penetrated into this group. And by the time he realized how deeply in, involved he was with them, he knew there was no way out. All he could do is try and provide for his family. When you see a $25,000 check, an anonymous check was sent to Marina Oswald, after Lee dies, remember that Lee's tax returns, his tax records, are still classified as security for security reasons. And Lee told me he was being paid hazard pay when he was in the USSR because he may not come out alive. He was paid well. And I see $25,000 showing up anonymously. Did it come from George Schild, who was in charge of some of Lee's finances? I don't know, but I know one thing. Anonymous, that amount of money, that's the equivalent today of almost a quarter of a million dollars. When did she get this 25000 After Lee was killed, came um. suddenly. Um, it left suddenly, too. I mean, you know, I mean, she, I mean, she was taken advantage of. Poor Marina. But anyway, we have... Dr. Sherman definitely would have done what she could to, to protect me and Lee. And, you know, they're my friends. They were all killed. Yes, Dr. Mary Sherman, David Ferry, even Guy Bannister yes. was murdered. Yeah, and they, they say that he died of a heart attack or, get this, or a cerebral hemorrhage. They can't make up their mind because actually he died from a bullet in the back according to his own wife and his, his mistress. And then Hugh Ward, of course, he was murdered. And then my dear landlady, and I named my first child after her, my child Susie, was named after Susie Hanover. And Susie um, disappeared. I have a, a check that she endorsed in October because we, you know, we left in September, early September, and had uh, some of the electricity bill to pay that was my landlady, and sent her, you know, the bill, and she endorsed it early in October. That is the end. We never hear from her again. She was in the phone book for 30 years. Suddenly, she's not there anymore, and they compiled in October. They compiled 
began in her area there because I looked up as much information as I could. That's when they compiled the phone book. There is no, there is no Susie or Mrs. William Hanover in in the phone book anymore. And then there's Mrs. Richardson. She's the pastor's wife, Pastor Richardson at St. George Episcopal Church. She's the one that drove me and Lee over to Susie Hanover's apartment and Lee pays $20 so I can get in and things like that. And what what happens there? Mrs. Richardson dies of a sudden heart attack 18 days after the assassination. There are others that, you know, we don't know how come they all died at the same time or around the same time or if they got in their face, you know, into the papers, they were dead. But it's one after another. You have some that cooperated. I mean, Sergio Arcacha Smith was alive to the end. And I made it out, and some others did too. Some that would surprise you. Why in the world would they allow um, some of these people to survive? But because I think uh, if they are standing alone by themselves, they have no witnesses to say, yes, they were with you or they were with me. I am glad I saved materials. I'm glad I was able to find some witnesses to corroborate and to support my history that I've given to you. Judith, thank you so very much. Thank you very much. Um, uh, God bless you and uh, keep you safe. I've been speaking with Judith Very Baker. Today's show has been Medical Experimentation and Oswald's Trip to Mexico City. Judith Very Baker is an author, teacher, and an artist, and was once a promising young science prodigy who hoped one day to find a cure for cancer. Recruited to New Orleans in the spring of 1963 to do cancer research, she instead was assigned to an underground laboratory project to develop a cancer-causing bioweapon. Early on in the summer of 1963, during her work in New Orleans, she learned of plans to kill the president. She is the author of two nonfiction personal memoirs, Me and Lee, How I Came to Know, Love, and Lose, Lee Harvey Oswald, and David Ferry, Mafia Pilot. Visit judithbaker.blogspot.com. That's J-U-D-Y-T-H-B-A-K-E-R.blogspot.com. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner and Yara Mako. Email me at faulkner at gunsandbutter.org. That's F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at G-U-N-S-A-N-D-B-U-T-T-E-R dot O-R-G. Visit our transitional website at gunsandbutter.org to sign up for our email list. Follow us on Twitter at G&B Radio.